This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Dr. Michael Neary. Dr. Neary received his MD from Hahnemann Medical School and has practiced family medicine for over 20 years. Since 2014, he has served as the Area Assistant Medical Director for Kaiser Permanente in Riverside, California. As you might suspect, Mike is also my cousin, who I do not get to see too much because he lives 3,000 miles away. Uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. So the first thing, I guess, why don't you uh, kick it off with your your history in family medicine and and how you kind of decided on that discipline? Sure, sure. I can even take you back a little bit. I I, uh, went to USC for undergrad. And I was interested in medicine, but I wasn't at the time uh, completely committed. I was thinking of business uh, as another option. As a matter of fact, I I uh, got my stockbroker's license uh, when I was 18, and um, I did that uh, kind of part time during college. And uh, but I, I still it uh, it 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 was interesting, but it, it just. Uh, I, I couldn't see myself doing that uh, for a career uh, full time, so I, um, I I took uh, engineering uh, courses and and biology courses, and I, I finished up at uh, USC with a uh, uh, bachelor of arts in in uh, biology, and uh, applied to medical schools, and and actually went to Hahnemann Medical School, which. Uh, which is uh, in Philadelphia and is the same medical school where my my father graduated from in in 1964. So I uh, I went to Hahnemann from uh, 92 to 1996, and and after during the uh, the last year of medical school, you think about um, maybe the last two years of medical school, you think of what discipline you want to pursue, and um, I. Uh, I grew up with my father talking about family medicine a lot, and and really just the uh, stories around dinner time, um, listening to what uh, what he talked about with his patients. That was that was very interesting. He always it was, there was the medicine part of medicine, and then there was the kind of the story part of medicine because he seemed to know his patients very well. He uh, connected with them, and and he always brought home their stories, the non-medical aspect, and so that was interesting. So I had always been interested in in family medicine. Um, I thought about a few other disciplines, uh, including radiology. I, I actually enjoyed radiology during the uh, radiology uh, rotations in medical school, um, called the uh, the sub I or sub internship. And um, I, I, I like the radiology and, and even pathology are, are kind of like a you know little little math problems. You you look at a film and you try to figure out what's wrong. Um, but the big thing that radiology and pathology uh, what they were missing for me um, was the uh, kind of the the human touch or the the interaction with patients. So even though I I interviewed for both. Um, radiology residencies and family medicine residencies, I ranked only the family medicine residencies. So um, I, I wound I wound up uh, getting my, my first choice for family medicine residency, which was 
uh, Kaiser Permanente in Riverside. And Riverside is the is the town I grew up in. So I kind of made a, a big circle from Riverside to uh, USC and LA, then to Philadelphia, and then back to Riverside. So I uh, started my my uh, family medicine residency in uh, um, 1996. And uh, family medicine residencies are are uh, three years long, uh, generally. Uh, they can be a little longer if you do some research, but uh, I knew I didn't want to do research as a uh, as a career, so I just did uh, three years in family medicine. You you can also do a a fellowship after family medicine, like uh, sports medicine or um, geriatrics, um, even hospital medicine now. But uh, I, I wanted to do uh, general family medicine, so I. Uh, finished my three years of medicine in Riverside at the residency, graduated in 99. And then I had to make a decision about where I um, where I wanted to live and, and maybe practice for the next 30 years. So um, I, uh, I interviewed in a couple different cities, including uh, Orange County, um, Orange County, uh, Los Angeles, and San Diego, and Riverside. Um, uh, I mean, I, I probably I would have been fine, I'm sure, in, in any of the cities, but it, it was very easy for me to stay in Riverside because I knew everyone. I mean, not just because my family was in Riverside, um, but um, uh, I knew all the uh, attending physicians. They uh, they kind of raised me, if you if you will. They they taught me everything. I uh, knew about medicine, and so I was kind of connected and plugged in already to the uh, the hospital and the medical group that was in Riverside. So I, I decided to stay. Um, and the, another reason for me to stay was there there was a uh, uh, a girl I was dating um, who later became my wife, and so it was just a another reason to stay. So uh, her name is uh, is Lisa, and um, so in '99 I I took a a, a full time position in in family medicine, as a family medicine attending in, uh, at uh, Riverside, uh, uh, medical group, it's called the, uh, the, uh, Permanente, uh, uh, the medical group is called, uh, Permanente and the Southern California Permanente Medical Group is the formal name. And, uh, we work with, uh, the Kaiser health plan and, and hospital system. Uh, so took a job there in, in 99, and this was, you know, of course, you know, years ago before, before we all had electronic medical records. So I, when I started out, the um, it was I had a, a a panel of patients that I was responsible for, and and uh, and by the way, I had been taking care of this panel all throughout my residency. So 96, 97, 98, 99. So I, I knew uh, that was the other good reason to stay in Riverside because I had already developed a, a rapport with my patient panel. And um, so I, I, uh, um, I continue to take care of uh, those patients. And, um, and it was, you know, uh, medicine has, has changed a lot since 99. It was, you know, I guess we could all consider it a little simpler back then, but, you know, the care wasn't as good because we did not have an electronic medical system, uh, which we do now. Um, and we didn't have as many medicines available. And we probably um, weren't as, uh, as, uh, we didn't 
maybe tightly control the diabetes and hypertension like we do nowadays. We're very, very uh, strict with the uh, with uh, hypertension control and blood sugar control and uh, cholesterol control. And it's really uh, it works out well for the patients, of course, because they they can uh, have a uh, an active, uh, a very active uh, lifestyle for much longer. And so people are, are are living a lot longer. We're much more aggressive about um, cancer screening now than we ever used to be. So um, there's a lot, a lot more studies being done, and so we know uh, who to screen and and when and and if we if they don't come in for their screening. And because of our our large database with our electronic medical records, we actually have outreach programs. We send them letters, and they come in and get taken care of. So, oh, do you, I can I can go on. There's a whole, or if you have more questions, I got a couple of questions lined up, so I'll, I'll fire a couple yeah. up. But no, that was a that was a very uh, I think good summary of of your medical career thus far. And um, I guess I, I I want to talk more about your administrative role uh, later on as well, but. Uh, first, I guess backtracking just into the the discipline of family medicine, what sticks out to me the most, it's, it seems that as practicing family medicine, it seems like you have to wear so many different hats, whereas in other other areas of medicine, right, you're, you're, you're very specialized, you're seeing patients for specific problems. So maybe can you talk to the challenges of really need, needing to survey so many different areas of health as part of working in family medicine. Yeah, sure, sure. And um, and so just a little side note. So uh, after a couple of years of family medicine, I I did go into uh, urgent care. And I'm going to talk about that a, a little later too, with um, urgent care being mostly the, um, the care of patients who um, are really too sick to wait for an appointment, but not sick enough to need the emergency room. Mm-hmm. So I, I can talk about that in a little bit, but on your, on your question with family medicine, you're right. There's, um, you're not specialized. And so when a patient has something wrong with them, they'll call their family medicine doctor first. And it could be for anything. It could be for a dermatology problem. It could be for an orthopedic problem. Uh, it, it could be for even a, a neurologic problem. And so if you kind of look at your schedule for the day, it's really a wide variety of stuff that you take care of. And and you, you kind of go back to the basics. You take a good history, good physical, make sure that what the patient has is is hopefully only self-limited, that it's benign, it's not going to be permanent or it's not going to cause any uh, morbidity. And um, in most cases, uh, that's, that's you know, just it's something um, mild and self-limited. And then you can tell them w- what the diagnosis is in your plan and, and they're good with that. On the other hand, if you do pick up something that could be more serious or if it's a problem that needs a workup, then you may need a specialist. So you can make a referral and, and, you know, I make referrals daily to a, a number of. And so you did say, at what point did you specialize in urgent care? So I, I um, during my residency, I actually started doing a lot of emergency room shifts and, uh, and urgent care shifts. So I started doing a lot of that work early on, but it wasn't until a couple of years after doing family that I started focusing more on urgent care. So probably like three years later or so. 2000, maybe 
uh, two. Is there a distinction between urgent care and emergency medicine, or do they kind of basically go hand in hand? Uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, there is. And uh, so emergency medicine is, uh, is of course, it's, uh, practiced in the, uh, uh, we used to call it the emergency room. Now the the ER docs call it the emergency department. Uh, a long time ago, there was mostly a big single room. Now it's really a department of many rooms. But uh, anyway, so emergency medicine is really, really meant for the care of of those conditions that if not treated, could lead to uh, permanent, uh, could lead to permanent disability, uh, harm, uh, pain, uh, you know, loss of life even. Um, and, and so uh, the emergency uh, medicine uh, folks are really kind of trained to specialize in those serious conditions, heart attacks and strokes and major trauma. And uh, they have to see them quickly, triage them, and start the treatment quickly. Urgent care, on the other hand, is really kind of a, uh, an area or a niche between emergency medicine and family. In family medicine, they, uh, patients make appointments for you know, follow-up of their chronic diseases or if they have something um, that's uh, mild in acuity. They can see a family medicine physician, but if they have something that, say, abdominal pain, for example, um, or if they have like a little shortness of breath, or if they have uh, a laceration or a fracture, they'll see an urgent care physician. And uh, the urgent care physician will see these folks because they can't really be, they can't really see a family medicine doctor because a family medicine doctor uh, has to see them quickly in 15 or 20 minutes, whereas we can spend more time if needed. Um, but so, uh, I would, yeah, so urgent care is kind of halfway between ER and, uh, and family. I guess now I wanted to ask about some of your, your, your current role, uh, with Permanente. Um, I know you shifted more into an administrative role, like I said, in 2014, uh, becoming the area, what's the official title? Area assistant yeah, it's uh, um, the the uh, so each uh, county uh, just about has a a an area medical director and uh, um, an assistant to that area medical director. So the job is the assistant area medical director, and there are several of us that uh, that help with and work the with the area medical director. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are you still seeing patients? Or yeah, yeah, uh, saw some patients uh, last night in uh, in urgent care. And also on uh, on Thursday, yeah. Uh, it was a little slow last night because the uh, the Dodgers were on, so it was actually an easy shift. The Dodgers were playing. They, of course, they uh, you know it was Game Seven, and um, if I would if I would have remembered that the uh, the uh, Dodgers were playing, I, I might not have um, signed up for a shift that night. But uh, as it turns out, the they did well, and 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 in urgent care, sometimes if there's a a major uh, you know sports event it'll actually be a little slower so <laughs> it was kind of easy money that night <laughs> uh, how's your your day-to-day changed o- over time uh, being more on the administrative side now yeah so uh, administrative side is is uh, it's another almost another branch of medicine um, the uh, there's uh, 
you know, medicine's a, a big industry in the United States. It, it, uh, we spend a ton of money, you know, 17, uh, roughly 17% of our GDP is spent on, on healthcare. It's a multi, uh, billion dollar industry in the United States. And, uh, and so there is some administrative, uh, needs to, to care for that and some oversight that's required to, to make sure that, uh, things are, are going well for, for the house of medicine and so some physicians do uh, some administrative work and i've been doing that for uh, several years and and it's it's interesting it's different than than uh direct patient care so i kind of consider administration indirect patient care because uh what i do in administration indirectly affects the patients but if i were to describe my work in a, in a sentence i i try to focus on uh, eliminating uh, any barrier that any of the physicians I work with have when they want to care for their patients. So I, I work with a, a couple different departments um, that are kind of under my purview, uh, if you will. Um, so emergency department, radiology, psychiatry, uh, physical therapy, pain, uh, urgent care, uh, laboratory. And, uh, I think I mentioned radiology. So those are the departments I work, I work with pain and addiction medicine too. And, uh, so, uh, my job is to make sure the physicians and the, the advanced practice providers in those departments, and even the nurses are, are able to, uh, uh, work, uh, in the work and see patients with, uh, minimum uh disturbance from from clerical work and the business side of it so i i can help them take care of the business side while they just they can see patients yeah elaborate more on those barriers to care that you're talking about you said clerical work business side what what can you do to kind of eliminate those things sure and there's a, a number of things so like i i wouldn't do the clerical work myself of course but um there there's a uh, if um for example, if I have a, uh, um, recently I was speaking to a, an emergency physician who uh, was having some trouble um, with a, a patient that uh, was being transferred from the emergency room to a psychiatric facility. And, and, um, and if, if there's a, a, a pattern of that, this happens frequently where there are some, where, where this physician may spend an inordinate amount of time trying to actually do the transfer rather than taking care of that patient. And I'll investigate that process and see if there's anything I can do to, to make that transfer a little um, uh, more, more seamless. Um, and so it can be something like that. It could be um, solving problems that uh, between the interface of, uh, of two uh, departments, maybe between um, say a, uh, uh, for example, a recent one between uh, blood bank and and the operating room, where uh, the uh, blood bank times could probably, uh, as far as the release of blood in emergencies, could be a little uh, simpler and faster. So we worked to uh, reduce the uh, the uh, release of blood in uh, in emergencies from the blood bank to the ER much quicker. So we actually have a very good uh, time now. It's about uh, six point one minutes um, during during some of these uh, procedures. So if we if they need blood, yeah. No, let's hear what's another good example of a, a time where you you broke down a barrier to help a doctor provide care. 
Okay, so the, the electronic medical record has been uh, helpful in many ways, but it has taken um, physicians are spending more time because there's more ability to input data and to be more detailed about a patient's care. We are spending more time doing that. And um, before, maybe if you were a family medicine doc and you're making a referral to radiology for a mammography, um, you just, it was on a piece of paper and you could do it and it was done with. And now um, you're spending more time doing it. And then, um, and then the um, result, the, the request goes to radiology and it can come back into a primary care doctor's uh, in basket, so to speak, kind of like your, your, your email in basket. And, uh, um, now when you do see a lot of patients, then your, your in basket can be full of messages. And so working on recently kind of automating some of this so that when a primary care doc orders a, mammo, a mammogram and a radiologist needs to make a change to the request because they think it could be better done in, a, in, um, in another way. For example, they, they um, would have to ask the primary care doctor to make that change because they, they're the ordering doc. But we, we figured out a way to, um, to, um, to make this process uh, more uh, automated so that the primary care doc just basically gets a, a staged request to, to make the change. So all they have to do is just sign it. Burnout is a big buzzword in medicine right now. Uh, I recently read an interview with Dr. Catherine Gold, a professor of family medicine at the University of Michigan, and she studies physician well-being. She argues that stress and even depression are more appropriate words to describe some frustrated physicians. She says, quote, I feel very stressed, but not burnout. Most of us primary care physicians are spending less time with our patients and much more time on clerical activities. That, I think, causes stress, but not necessarily burnout. Does this reflect what you've seen in your healthcare system? Well, that's a, uh, that's a, uh, that's a big subject, burnout. Um, it's a, kind of a, a, we talk about it a lot now, and it's, it is multifactorial. Stress is, a, is definitely a component um, of burnout. Um, just, a, I guess a couple of comments on this, um, when, when, um, when we started with the electronic medical record, as I, uh, just, you know, mentioned a few minutes ago, there's more of an opportunity to put a lot of data in and, and you have much more available to you as far as their patient, as far as the patient history, all the labs, all the radiology results, all the messages and, and. So even though the, the care is much better than it was maybe 20 years ago, and part of that's because of the electronic medical record, um, it's much more time-consuming uh, for, for a patient, even during the patient visit, uh, because you have the opportunity to do things like, um, like cross-check their, their vaccines and their any care gap, for example, have they had their you know cancer screening done have they had their um diabetic uh foot exam done and so all this is available to you and because it's available it's it's easier to address and you do address it and uh, so you tend to be more intense 
with each visit than you have in the past. And the, and so that, uh, you know, there's only so much time in the day. And, um, so your, your day is a little bit more compressed than it used to be. Um, so I think the, the EMR, as we all call it, uh, can be a, a factor in, in burnout. Um, you'll also hear a couple other categories, uh, I think contributing to burnout with, um, some sometimes insurance companies uh, are uh, when they um, and I'm not talking Kaiser Permanente because we have a a different we have a, a unique relationship with our insurance company between Permanente and Kaiser that uh, this isn't a problem but uh, with if I'm in private practice and I'm dealing with several insurance companies then part of my burnout is because I may submit a claim and the claim could be rejected or it could be changed for any reasons that, that contributes to, to burnout. Um, the, uh, also in, in some states in the United States, the, uh, the, uh, medical malpractice environment is, is, uh, pretty, uh, detriment, can be detrimental to a physician's practice because there is no, um, uh, you know, say, uh, cap on, on pain and suffer on the pain and suffering uh, component in a uh, medical malpractice lawsuit, and so um, this makes the uh, medical malpractice insurance very expensive. And so physicians can actually practice defensive medicine and and worry about that to an extreme in other states, and that can be a component to burnout. Um, there, there's something that I was thinking about recently that that many people don't talk about, but I do think. Um, is important is is this is you know when when you when you when you first miss when you become a, a physician after residency you still in our huge learning phase and and so you kind of go through a, a change in your career that you weren't ready for because you spent your whole life preparing to become a physician and you're finally a physician at age 29 or 30 or 33 or whatever and you're finally there and then you know what the work is is actually very tough, very tough. It's you know long hours and and um, and so I think physicians naturally go through a five year phase or so where maybe you, there could be some depression or something, and because you are stressed and and you feel you don't know if hey you know can I keep this up for thirty years? Now that had this has been around for decades. I think all physicians kind of made that transition, but now we're but now it's talked about, oh, well, I'm just burnt out. And you kind of blame it on the career a little bit when in fact, it's just a, it's just a natural transition from the learning and academic part of your career building into the actual implementation of everything you learned with the patients and the fact that, you know, Hey, it's a tough career and you're still got a lot to learn and you have Normally, you have questions about, hey, can I do this for 30 years? So you go through this odd phase in the first five years after, um, after residency. And, um, and, I, and I think it's, that's quite normal. It's been around for you know, a long, long time. And, and, you know, and we, we shouldn't consider that a part of burnout. That's just a natural transit, kind of a life transition for people who are starting their careers later in life because of all the academia to prepare for the career. Have you, uh, it, it sounds like you've noticed this uh, in some of your fellow doctors. Have you ever taken a younger doctor kind of under your wing and said, you know, this is just a transition. Um, this is just part of, of earning your stripes here and, and becoming 
uh, you know, a, a really good doctor providing good care. Yeah, absolutely. I, matter of fact, uh, you know, I interview a lot of doctors uh, looking for jobs, and, and I and I tell them about this, and I I tell them that they're about to embark on you know the next phase of their career, which is hopefully going to be a long one, thirty years, and uh, they're going to have a lot of competing priorities. They're going to have you know they have their their patients, which are you know number one, or you know um, taking care of them, taking care of them in a in a way they need to be as far as you know, take some time and, and, uh, and number two, you know, some, some physicians are starting families and you are thinking about buying a house and a car. And, and, and so I, I tell them that this is all going to be very, you know, that are, you know, it's going to be difficult for them. And some physicians are, a lot of physicians are married to, uh, uh, you know, people who, who, you know, also have uh, full-time jobs and that doesn't make things any, any easier. Uh, so they're kind of, you know, you have to work that out too, especially if you, you know, if uh, they're starting a family or something and then, yeah, so you both have full-time jobs and, and the jobs can be hard, especially physicians that are married to each other. Um, and uh, starting a family is, is a big deal. So I, yeah, I, uh, I kind of take them under my wing and, and uh, and talk about that and let them know that uh, what happens is the first five years of your career are usually kind of a little slow. Then after that, one day you wake up and, and you're close to 50 like all, me. All, all good points. So I saw that you're currently on a political action committee. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talk about the work you do within that committee. The... Um, the uh, uh, political action uh, committees are are so. This is something that uh, I do, you know, outside of work, and um, so we would we would take a uh, we we have funds and we we support uh, you know, candidates or or ballot initiatives that um, uh, that are are friendly to and supportive of the House of Medicine and the patients. Uh, sometimes we see that. Uh, the uh, state legislators and all their, you know, they have good intent. I'm assuming all the time, and uh, however, sometimes uh, there may be a, a a bill or even a, a a public ballot initiative that's outstanding that uh, could be uh, detrimental to to patient care, either to uh, you know delivery of patient care or to or to or to physicians or to nurses. Um, and so uh, it, that's uh, that's really what we we focus on is to support uh, candidates that are are friendly to patients in the in the House of Medicine in general. Is a lot of your your work related to insurance? There's a a small part that's related to insurance, but it could be I mean it could be insurance, it could be uh, medical malpractice. Uh, recently. Uh, uh, pharmacy is kind of a uh, kind of a, a very commonly talked about issue. The transparency of of drug of drug pricing. So um, that that's a would be another example. Uh, public health is a is a, is another example. Um, I wanted to. I know you mentioned earlier that Permanente has a unique relationship with the Kaiser Insurance. Uh, system. Could you explain how, like that, that relationship and how that differs from a lot of the other uh, insurance setups in the United States? Sure, sure. So I'm, I'm part of a uh, 
a very large uh, medical group. We have approximately um, 7,000 physicians in, uh, in Southern California. And we, we uh, contract with or have a, uh, an agreement with an insurance plan, uh, Kaiser. And we, we only do business with that insurance plan and their hospital chain. So it's the, so it's a kind of a, a group of three. It's our, our medical group plus the Kaiser insurance plus the Kaiser hospitals. And so we, we, we work with that insurance and then we work only with the, the hospitals and facilities that are part of, uh, 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 Kaiser, the Kaiser uh, insurance and, and, uh, and hospital system. Um, this, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, it works very well for us. And we, uh, we, we've been doing this for, for decades and we've, uh, we've got it fine tuned now. And, and, uh, and the, the three of us, the kind of the, the triad, we, we work together and, uh, continuously to try to, uh, improve, uh, care for patients and, in the areas that we uh, deliver care, and the way that this differs from other other setups in the United States is is this is is if um, in other areas you could have a uh, a medical group and the medical group may contract or have agreements with multiple insurance companies and could maybe work in different hospitals, uh, tenant and dignity and HCA. And so uh, you can be a, a physician with multiple insurance, um, companies and multiple hospitals. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, it's different setup. I, 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 I tend to like ours a lot. I, I think it's very simple. Um, it's uh, seamless and we don't, um, our medical group, for the most part, we, we just we just don't worry about the things that uh, other medical groups can worry about, which includes having a uh, really an, uh, uh, a, maybe a bad relationship with the insurance company because they're always trying to, um, re- you know, reject claims or, you know, down code claims. Uh, bundle your codes to so that you can get less money. Um, maybe the insurance companies may try to um, pay pay you less. Um, so um, it's uh, it's right. So I, I, I like our setup. The is um, and if you have different insurance companies, you could have you have to work with multiple uh, formularies, patient drug formularies. And uh, we don't have to worry about that. We have one drug formulary. Our, our formulary is is actually um, it's written and approved by the uh, physicians in coordination with the pharmacists. And whereas um, if I'm working with other insurance companies, I have to work with their formulary. And their formularies could be developed by I mean, someone with maybe less uh, medical expertise, maybe they're worried only about the dollar. So we don't have to worry about that. Okay. A couple of points off of that. Um, why, why would Kaiser be less likely? I, I, I think I still don't understand. Why would Kaiser be less likely to reject claims compared to other insurance companies? Isn't Kaiser ultimately a business and an insurance company trying to make money as well or? Yeah, they, so they um, 
we we because we really don't uh we we uh we don't have claims and i guess maybe that's the the easiest and the the best answer um we our, our medical group is is at risk or or capitated however you want to describe it so what happens is um we have a uh, the the insurance company will um will have revenue from the premiums collected from the patient population and from those premiums a sum of money is uh sent to the medical group the medical group uses that sum of money to care for the group of patients that has insurance with kaiser and so there's no need for the medical group to send a bill to the insurance company and so um, we just don't have that kind of uh, relationship is is the fact that you only accept Kaiser health insurance does that exclude certain people from care or is that pretty accessible to everybody yes yeah, so um, Kaiser is a, uh, a non-profit uh, insurance company and so uh, although we we care for a lot of patients with Kaiser insurance. We also care for patients uh, without insurance or who are uh, underinsured, uh, so to speak. And uh, there's a lot of uh, a charity care, of course, that comes through the emergency departments and the and the the hospitals. Uh, also, Kaiser works uh, very uh, tightly with uh, all the communities to support. Uh, the um, all of the uh, uh, the uh, members of the community, and so there's different ways that that Kaiser actually connects with the uh, the the population outside of just having Kaiser insurance. I guess this is more of a, a general question, but what do you think of the? I it, it sounds like Kaiser and Permanente and their relationship is is unique to California and doesn't span across the nation. What do you think about the current state of insurance? As far as I know, we're still technically under, although there's been a lot of uh, debate and fireworks, healthcare.gov is still operational, correct? Yes. And so what do you, what do you think about the current that the really the state of Obamacare and what that does for the quality of care for patients? Sure. And that's a that's a, a big question, and I'm sure, you know, however it's answered, you're you're probably have uh, like whoever listens to your your podcast, they'll be they'll be ha- some of them will naturally be happy with uh, the Affordable Care Act, and others uh, less so. Um, it is a hot hot uh, hot question. So just to, about the uh, so for Kaiser Permanente, we. We're, we're actually uh, not just in California, but we are in a, we do span the United States. We're not as, as big as other um, insurance companies, but uh, we are, we are big. We're in several states and, and we're growing. We are in Hawaii and in the uh, Pacific Northwest and in uh, Colorado. Um, we're in the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, we're in Georgia, um, in Northern Southern California, of course. Uh, and, and, uh, we will, we, we have a good system and it will, it will continue to grow. Um, and I, I do see this as a, uh, the setup 
of our medical group and our insurance company as a as a potential solution for for care delivered in the, in the United States, um, or at least you know that 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 mode of practice, if you will. Um, now, I think you're you're uh, you're talking about uh, you ask about you know, Obamacare or so Obama. Um, He's you know well known for the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it had many provisions inside of it, and uh, the intent was to was to uh, actually had a lot of intents, but uh, one big thing was to um, have a website where people can go to and, and get insurance. And and obviously the main goal is to uh, really expand uh, healthcare to um to people who don't have uh insurance and and it was i I think you know you know both both political parties or all three or most political parties would say that uh, it it was successful and i think the data does show that the um that the aca was successful in, in expanding care expanding the uh uh, insured and lowering the number of uninsured. Several states ha- have uh, been more aggressive under the ACA than other states. Uh, California was was uh, one of those states that uh, they are very aggressive and they did reduce the uh, the uh, percent of uh, uninsured. Um, so I think um, you know, although it keeps coming up, the repeal and replace. I think that. Um, that the likelihood is that will will not happen, and you know it probably it, it shouldn't happen. I, I think uh, the ACA is is a uh, it's uh, directionally good. It uh, does need some tweaks, and I, I think um, you know as uh, as we figure this out, I think uh, we'll we'll make the ACA a little little better. Yeah. Okay, so can you buy Kaiser Health Insurance on? healthcare.gov or is that just kind of a are they are they separate or do they kind of mesh oh that's a good question um i think you can you you buy it through our the uh, california uh exchange yes mm-hmm. and, and you can also buy it through through other modes too but it is definitely uh, offered on the uh, on the on the exchange the state exchange do you ever see us heading in a direction similar to, uh, I believe, Canada and some other European countries where they kind of just do away with insurance and you, you kind of look at healthcare more as just uh, a right? And, and like, why, why do we need all these insurance companies to get in the way? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's um, there's not a, I don't think there's anywhere in the world that has a perfect system. I think uh, if you look anywhere in the world, they they have some um, good aspects of their care. Then they have some some care that uh, you know is uh, that needs improvement. Um, what we what we do see uh, maybe not not infrequently in the United States is people actually some some patients from Canada come down to the U.S. and, and get their care here. They the care uh, can be very very good here. The the U.S. is is criticized for spending a lot of money on care and not having universal health care right? so that's the, the crux of the matter is is uh, if you have if you're not uh, if you're insured and you're well insured the care can be very 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 good the uh, problem is, is that we're not 100 percent insured so 
I think what the United States needs to do is not to adopt um, other models like the Canadian or the English model or anything else, but rather to tweak the Affordable Care Act. Um, I, I, uh, I think most folks are in favor of what's called universal health care and not uh, the single payer system, which, which you know, can get rid of uh, you know, some of the insurance companies. Um, what's the what's the distinction there? Single payer versus universal healthcare again? Yeah, universal healthcare is is just is is everyone has healthcare. The single payer, the distinction is, is that you know, it's a it's describes more the the financial system that's set up behind it behind it. So universal healthcare just means that everyone has access to care, and Single payer means that there is only one entity that is responsible for financing that care. And I'll, I'll um, just just a quick example. In, in California, there was a bill to um, to develop a single payer system. And now that's kind of easier said than done. Uh, if you were to take the California bill, I think it was sponsored by the some nurses unions and. They uh, what they were using was the the fee for service model to provide universal care, and it was going to cost much much more money than could feasibly be, you know, implemented. I guess, um, and uh, so so it's a it's a little bit more complex than just saying okay, let's do away with all insurance companies and. Have single have universal health care through single payer. It's not not quite that simple because you have to you want uh, you want a a viable solution which is involves yes universal health care and a a good financing mechanism. And single payer may not be the best way to go. And I don't think it's the best way to go. And it's that's why in England, for example, they just don't have the the um, the country's healthcare system, but they have these other healthcare systems because there's a chunk of England that finds that the healthcare there is is suboptimal, and so they kind of upgrade their insurance to have better care, so to speak. So, uh, what we want in the U.S. is for everyone to have really good care, and so we're so at least I am not interested in following the the Canadian or the English model. I think what we need to do in the United States is to is to really uh, bend the cost curve. In the delivery of medicine, if we can do that, then we'll be able to get to our endpoint, which is universal health care, with the um, that that is uh, viable in the United States through our, our system without having single payer. When you what do you mean bending the cost curve? Just making uh, just things cheaper, or yeah, yeah, the the the, um, the cost of health care is uh, has been increasing higher than the rate of inflation for many years as a result it's it's um it's a, it's a bigger chunk of our gdp than we want it to be and it's continuing to be a bigger chunk of our gdp so 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 physicians and the ancillary so the nurses and pharmacy and tech and insurance companies and hospitals together we need to figure out a way how to get the patients the care that they need at an affordable price. 
And mm-hmm. if if that can be done, then then that will be the the answer. I'm sure we could do a, a whole two hour episode just on insurance. It sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. A couple more questions I have, and then we could wrap up here. Uh, one last thing about family medicine, and then I just wanted to ask you about uh, a couple of personal tidbits. But as I'm sure you heard, and many of our viewers heard about NYU's famous uh, tuition-free medical school. Uh, I don't know how long that'll last or what the the stipulations behind that are, but uh, there were, from what I read, a number of motivations, one being the the high price of medical school, obviously, but also um, it seems there's a trend that certain students are getting swayed away from certain disciplines of medicine because they aren't as lucrative and a lot of that is is people not choosing to do primary care, family medicine, et cetera. Have you seen people uh, shift away from primary care and family medicine and go into other more uh, lucrative specialties? Ah, uh, that's a good question. So, two things: one about the you know uh, NYU and uh, the cost of the cost of being trained for, for medicine. So, so developing a physician is very very expensive. Um, you know, you have to become a physician, you, you go through college, and that could be private. Uh, you go through medical school, that you know that could be private. And residents uh, during residency, uh, you tend not to make a lot of money. Um, so you do graduate and start your career with a. Uh, you could start it with a tremendous amount of debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and that that uh, that position can can uh, have an effect on which, which discipline you choose. You might want to be, you, I mean, you could be steered towards disciplines that have historically paid a lot more and steered away from disciplines that, that pay less in the United States being, you know, primary care. Um, so two couple things, uh, on NYU, the, the, I mean, it's kind of, it's also easier said than done. I, I believe they had an endowment or a big donation and, uh, you know, I could be wrong about that. So you might want to check, but I, I don't think, uh, they, they did anything, uh, spectacular. I just think that they had the money to offer the, uh, free tuition. And I don't think that that would easily be duplicated in uh, throughout the rest of the, uh, kind of graduate, uh, medical education. Um, now going back to your choosing careers. Yeah. So you graduate with a lot of debt and you could want to be steered towards surgical subspecialties or medical subspecialties. So part of the, the answer to that is to, to make primary care more of an inducement and you can make it more of an inducement by having better loan repayment programs, um, and paying primary care physicians a higher or more. But then that kind of, uh, gets into bending the cost curve, right? <laughs> like how are yeah, we going yeah. to pay physicians so, more, but then bend the cost curve, right? <laughs> so, so it depends how, how you, I mean, if it's a, if you make it a zero sum game, then you simply, can you pay primary care a little more and, and other folks, non-primary care a little less. In other words, a kind of, uh, uh, like, like in some of the other countries, I think it was England where, where the, the difference in the salaries between primary care and, and non-primary care physicians are it's a lot less than it is in the United States. So when you when you kind of narrow that uh, uh, compensation gap, uh, then you're going to have less of a uh, um, desire for these 
people coming out without debt to go into uh, the, high, the higher paying specialties. So last couple of things here. Uh, I know at, at, at some point early in your career, you owned a, a cof- couple coffee shops. Could you talk about uh, when you when you uh, de- buying the coffee shops and how that came about? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I love coffee, but that's not why I uh, got into the, the coffee business. I, I, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning part of the, uh, the, the WebEx, the, um, we, uh, I, I was always very interested in business. And, and as, as a kid, um, I, I bought books about business and, um, and even, even uh, books about franchises and restaurants had always been fascinated with, with that aspect. So, um, uh, it, it was actually with, a, uh, with a, a girl who became my wife. We, we, uh, we, uh, we worked at these shops and, I, and at least, you know, I owned my, I, I bought one and, um, was this after like during your residency or after your residency? This, yeah, this was, um, right after, right after residency. And, uh, so I, I bought a, a coffee shop. And so I was really yeah, burning the candle both ends because I was you know, working hard as a doc and I, no, I, I didn't have a family yet. And so it's probably, uh, that was a little easier for me, but, uh, uh I bought a, a coffee shop and, and it did very well. And, and I, I built another one. So we wound up having two and, uh, geez, I think we kept it for like seven years. Um, and it was it was very interesting. I learned a lot. I mean, these are uh, these were part of a franchise for several years. Then, then, um, then we went to independent to to kind of get out from under some of the stipulations of the franchisor. Um, and uh, as a franchisee, you're kind of limited in what you can do. So after a couple of years, uh, we went uh, independent and we, we formed our own like, chain, so to speak. And, and, uh, uh, Fox we, coffee. We correct. A, what's that? Fox coffee. That's right. Because it was in the, uh, the first one was in the, uh, Fox, uh, theater uh, building in, in Redlands. And, uh, so we named it Fox coffee. And then the second one we opened up in Loma Linda was also named Fox coffee. And so we had two of those and it was, oh, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. We met a lot of people we hired on, but we did everything ourselves. We, we did the, the marketing and the HR. So the hiring and the, the firing and the, we, 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 uh, we had a manager, of course, and we steered the manager towards, you know, the, uh, what, what vendors we wanted to use, what vendors we didn't want to use. And, and it was interesting. It was fun. We, 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 uh, the, during all the holidays, we uh, made sure that uh, the shops were fully, fully decorated. And, and so Christmas was a lot of fun, too. Um, the, the employees, they were part of our family. We spent a lot of time at the, at the shops together. Um, so we did that for, for several years and learned a a heck of a lot. The big thing though, is you can't do, it's, it is really hard to do medicine and have some sort of, you know, uh, uh, business on the outside. You can't do both. And then if you're ever going to start a family, which we eventually did, you definitely can't do all three of them. So, so, uh, as we were thinking of selling them, someone came up to us and and, uh, offered to, to buy the shops. And, and so that was, uh, um, so that's what happened. And so we, uh, we got out of that business and, and, uh, Hey, maybe at some point after retirement, I'll, we'll get into that again. But, uh, right now, no, it's, 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 I'm doing medicine and, uh, and then the family, that's it. That's a, I, I love that story. It's a, it's a really cool thing that you did there. Yeah, cool. Um, so, right. Two last things and then I'll let you go. Yeah. Um, so one is we were talking about position well-being. What is one strategy you use to make 
maintain your own work-life balance? Okay. <laughs> so, um, well, you know, one thing is helpful is, is, uh, is my, my wife after our third kid, after the third kid, she retired from being a school teacher. So she really helps kind of keep the rest of my life together as far as the kids and the home and, and, and all that. So that helps me tremendously. So I'm able to, I'm able to work a lot and I know things are, are just being taken care of. I'm not worried about the family because she's kind of the CEO of the family and I'm just, I'm a doc at work. Um, and, uh, so what helps me, you know, I, I do, I work out every day that helps, but, uh, and then uh, of course, like today, for example, I uh, had a, had a day off and, and carve some pumpkins with the kids. And so that, that, that was pretty cool. So got away with no, uh, no lacerations to the fingers with a knife, <laughs> but we carved up a couple pumpkins. And, and so that uh, was my work-life balance for, for today. And I uh, got a good hard couple of days coming up. So, uh, yeah, so I, I keep it, I try to keep it balanced. Good for you. And the last thing I want to say or ask is, uh, since you see so many different things in the medical field, what is the, a medical myth that you would like to debunk uh, people coming in thinking there's something wrong with them and you know, they're, they're totally off the radar. Yeah. Okay. So medical myths. Um, we, so vaccinations, you know, vaccinations got a bad rap, like the flu shot and all this a couple of years ago, there was a, I think it was an English, I don't know, scientists or something published a bogus report, really, these, these vaccines were related to autism, something like that. And that guy and that movement did more damage <laughs> than anything I can remember. I mean, you know, there are good things that came about with the, you know, industrial revolution. And then there was, you know, antibiotics. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff that came out of medicine. And one of them was vaccines vaccines and antibiotics and the sterile technique, all these things improved the patient care, extended our lives. And then you get a movement that's kind of like, you know, with a tinfoil caps on the heads about vaccines are bad for you. And the problem is, is that once that started, right, it's like, it's just a train went off the tracks and we can't get it back on. There's just a group of people out there who will not just, they will not accept the evidence that you know, vaccinating everyone is good. And so as a result, unfortunately, we are seeing uh, flu deaths that are completely preventable. And more people die from the flu every year than from breast cancer, but breast cancer, you know, is a, is a, big, big topic, but unfortunately people don't talk about getting flu shots. Um, 80% of the children that died last year from the flu did not get the flu vaccine, 80%. And, wow. and so I think if I were to debunk a single myth, it would be that vaccines are bad for you. And, and so I think if people, uh, in California, one of my, uh, colleagues, um, who's in the California legislature, he, uh, panned, he um, passed a, uh, a bill went into law that removed the uh, personal exemption, personal belief exemption, uh, as an option to uh, to kind of refuse to have you let your kids get vaccines. So now, if you're going to go to public school, you have to have vaccines unless you have a, a med medical contraindication. So this is, that's been very helpful. But um, anyway, 
So that's the uh, single, single, uh, single myth there. I should definitely get a flu shot because I do not usually get one. Um, hey, I just got mine the other day. <laughs> so it's not bad. Your, arms, your arm is sore for a day, but no big deal. <laughs> Dr. Michael Neary, thanks for joining the show. Yes, sir. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.